Today we are taking a look on what it means to prepare our hearts for worship, how to have clean hands and a pure heart, and what that means as we approach the King of Glory. I pray that this episode blesses you. Hey friends, welcome to the Hearing Jesus Podcast. Do you sometimes doubt if you're truly hearing God's voice or if it's really your own? And how do you know the difference? Do you ever struggle to feel confident in your relationship with God and what He says in His Word? Do you sometimes feel stagnant or like maybe you hit a wall in your spiritual life? Hey, I'm your host, Rachel Grohl, missionary, author, pastor, and life coach, and I have been there. I too was doubting God's voice in my own life. I felt insecure about my relationship with Him, and I wanted to be obedient to what God was calling me to do, but I wasn't quite sure how to figure out what that was. I felt like I was wasting time trying to figure it out, and I just wanted a way to understand His will for my life. The answer for me was found in the pages of the scriptures, as I learned how to understand what they were actually saying. If you're ready to grow in your faith and to step confidently into the calling God has for you, then join me as we dig deep into God's Word so that you can learn to live out your faith in your everyday life. Hey friends, before we get into today's episode, I have a quick word. I know that you have been frustrated with being confident in how to tell the difference between hearing from God and wondering if it's your own voice. I know, I've been there myself. That's why I wrote the Bible study, She Hears, Learning to Listen to Jesus. This is a six-week study that takes you through the book of John, looking at six women in the life of Jesus, how he calls them, how he encourages them, how he equips them. It also teaches the color method of Bible study, helping you to learn how to really understand the scriptures. I also include a lot of cultural and historical information that makes these familiar passages of scripture really come alive. This is a great study to do with maybe your teen girls or a group of friends from church, and it will really help you gain confidence in how to hear from the Lord and set you up with some tools that will stay with you long after the study is over. Again, head to shehears.org and you can find the Bible study on the resources page. Hey friends, welcome back to the Hearing Jesus podcast. I'm your host, Rachel Grohl. Today we're going to be reading through Psalm 24, a Psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to an idol or swear by what is false. He will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God his Savior. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, O God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is he, this King of glory? The Lord of mighty, he is the King of glory. Now today we're going to be looking at Psalm 24. And if you didn't listen to yesterday, yesterday we walked through Psalm 23. This is a follow-up Psalm by David. And I think there's a couple of interesting elements in here that will give us some insight as, as to what's going on. Now, essentially, this Psalm is broken up into almost like three sections. And what scholars believe is that this was a Psalm that was 
probably routinely used as almost like a ritual psalm or a liturgy psalm that was used in ancient Israel as they were approaching the Levites and the priests were approaching the temple. So some even believe that this was written for the time when the Ark of the Covenant was relocated to Jerusalem. Regardless, it was something that was probably saying more than once. This wasn't just like one prayer of David, but this is, remember, there's lots of different kinds of psalms. This is one of the ones that was more of like a ceremonial song. And so something else that I think is important to point out is it, it may have even been recited by the worshipers as they approached Jerusalem. So we see the middle section, is kind of like Psalm 15, where there's this question and answer about who's worthy to worship. And then the last section is um, a lot like a ceremony kind of psalm. And that's the part that they think that they are talking about the transporting of the Ark of the Covenant. But basically, um, this psalm would have been used as part of the, the pre preparation for the worship experience. This is a psalm that would have been well known in Bible times. And if you remember, um, when Paul is talking in 1 Corinthians, when he's talking about certain kinds of food being forbidden, he quotes Psalm 24, verse 1, when he says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. So we know that the New Testament writers were familiar with this psalm. In verse 2, it says, For he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. That seems pretty straightforward, but I think it's important to point out that the way that the ancients saw the waters and the seas was different than what we would know. Of course, they didn't scientifically understand how everything worked at that point. And so when we see these descriptions, they are describing the world in terms of what they saw rather than what we know now. So from Egypt to Babylon to, you know, all those different areas at that point, they all had a very similar understanding of how the world actually was formed. They would almost see it as if it was a large disc surrounded by water. Like on all of the borders around everything, there would be um, a mountain that kind of divided the land from the sea. And so in the Hebrew, it's interesting because that Hebrew word that is translated waters, it's it's literally a translation of the word rivers. And so from the geographical perspective of an ancient Israelite, the deep water of the sea would have been thought of as like a river that was encircling the whole earth. And so there's even some um, ancient Babylonian maps that kind of re represent something similar. And it shows like a big circular disk surrounded by another circle on the map named as ocean. And so, um, and that word is also translated to another word that means river. And so in other words, the sea would be seen as moving in currents like a river. And so that word currents is the same word that is translated as waters. And so in Psalm 24, where Yahweh is the true king, it's based on the fact that he is the sovereign creator of the universe who holds the earth firm together in the midst of these seas. So I just thought that was interesting to point that out. Verse 3, who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? 
So when it's talking about going up the hill of the Lord or or the mountain of the Lord, you have to remember that the temple was built at the top of the mountain. So when it talks about going to the hill of the Lord, it's essentially talking about going to the temple or going to the place of worship. And so um, the temple mount was the place of where the Israelites believed God's throne was. And so... What makes that relevant for us is we're starting to understand that this psalm is a call to praise God's kingship, yes, but then also to prepare our hearts to enter to worship. And I think this is something that we often forget about. We, of course, like, and I'm guilty of this too, we place such such an emphasis on grace and come as you are and Jesus will meet you in the middle of the your mess. And while yes, all of that is absolutely 100% true, there is also this understanding that I think sometimes we forget that when we are approaching our time that we're going to go worship, there is some preparation of the heart that should be going into it, getting our hearts and our minds ready to enter into this place of worship. And um, this, I covered this on the week that we did in the special spiritual disciplines, the week of worship, where we talked about there's a difference of you just kind of plowing through the door late on a Sunday morning and jumping in. They've already started the worship songs and, you know, you might just not feel like God's presence is there. Well, of course we know God's presence is always there. It's really a matter of whether or not we can tap into it and we can sense it or we can feel it. And one of the ways that we can prepare our hearts for that interaction with God is by preparing ourselves to be in God's presence in in a corporate worship experience. And so sometimes that happens the night before. Sometimes that happens, of course, the morning of where you are preparing your heart and, and making sure that you are in a place where you are ready And really ready to receive what God has for you in those moments. And so we see this idea continued in verse 4. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to an idol or swear by what is false. This idea of clean hands and pure heart. So David is instructing basically those who want to go worship and, and serve God and receive his blessing. They they need to develop in them this pure heart and godly character. And this is, I'm not talking about um, evangelism at this point. I'm talking about spiritual growth at this point. And so um, if we are wanting to take part in serving God, but we're doing it from a posture of having hands that are not clean, there's a couple, there's a couple things that happens there. Um, If there is spiritual impurity in us, on our hands, on our hearts, in our minds, that is offensive to God. And so clean hands, essentially, was a symbol of a pure heart. And so when we're talking about clean hands and a pure heart who does not trust in an idol, your hands, or at least in this culture, their hands, were a metaphor of your exterior life, the way that you interacted with other people. And your heart was a metaphor for the interior life, the things that only God knew. And so this verb trust literally means to lift up 
And it's a technical language for like taking an oath or making a promise. So lifting up the hands meant swearing an oath. And so the way the ESV version translates that is who does not lift up his soul? And that word, his soul, from the Septuagint reading, which is the um, Greek reading, is actually my soul. So it's been this long established understanding that there is almost like an direct and indirect speech here together. And so um, in practical terms, what that means is, um, let me think of a real world example. Somebody that has punched their wife in their face on Saturday, but then goes and tries to serve communion on Sunday. That's going to be offensive to God. And there's consequences for that. And while, yes, there is forgiveness and grace and mercy and healing in that situation, it has to first be reconciled through this repentance. And repentance doesn't just mean, I'm sorry I got caught or I'm I'm sorry you got hurt. Repentance means... I don't want to do this anymore, and I need your help, God, to get me out of this situation. Repentance is a change. It's not just an I'm sorry. It's it's I need a change. I don't want to do this anymore. And so um, when it talks about lifting up the soul to an idol, that is an expression that really means to nurse an appetite for something. And so the word there that is translated as soul it really refers to uh, physiologically the throat and it's talking about having an appetite or a desire for something. And so in some contexts, that same expression is used with God as the object. Like God, let you be the appetite of my soul. Let, Let me have a desire for you. And so the term for idol here is related to this idea of emptiness or vanity. Um, some writers use the term no gods for idols. Um, and so there's just this idea of, of a shift that needs to happen in our hearts when we're somebody that is um, changing the posture of our heart instead of living for ourselves and the desires and the flesh, but living for God and his, and desiring him and desiring his spirit. And so one of the things that I think that we forget about is that this understanding of a pure heart as it is referring to like this inward holiness, the the inward motivation, the inward goal is the goal um, really because there's a pure heart before the Lord or is the goal that I want to look like I have my act together or I want other to, others to see me or I want this attention on myself so they don't see what's really going on behind closed doors so, so they don't see the hidden sin. What is the motivation there? Um, because the, the honest truth of that is that God is not going to accept the worship of those th- that are allowing anything to come in, in place of him or above him or in front of him or to take priority over him. And he's not even going to allow those kinds of people to remain in his presence, to be perfectly honest. And so there has to be this reconciling between my external motivation and my external behavior and what's really going on inside my heart.
And I think there's a definite difference between a believer that is sincerely trying to walk and follow the Lord and reconcile the things that they struggle with and somebody that is blatantly living in opposition to God, but is trying to still show up on Sunday morning, like there's nothing wrong um, with not even, sometimes it's not even hidden sin. Sometimes it's blatant sin. And I, I think this text is really talking to both of those scenarios. I think there's a rejection when somebody is living in sin and um, trying to just hide it. There's a rejection from God because God is just and the way that we have reconciliation in our relationship with him is through Jesus and surrendering uh, those things in our heart to, to him. But but I also think that um, when we prepare our hearts for worship, it gives us this moment where we are able to say, okay, God, I'm going to surrender my heart and my mind to you and point out the things that maybe I don't even recognize that I'm doing that could put me in a place of not being in the best place of the relationship with you that I could be. And, and I think that happens. I know in my own life where just in the hurried pace of the week, sometimes I just don't have a, a place in my life that I have intentionally stopped to to ask God, okay, is there something in me that I'm doing that, that you don't want me to do? And I, that I use that, sometimes Saturday night it starts, or even Sunday morning, I use that space, that preparation of worship space, to take that to the Lord and say, okay, God, even if I don't know what it is right now, I want to be open to your spirit, reveal to me the things that dis are displeasing to you that you want to refine in my life or you want to take away or you want to point out and, and God help me to see those things with your eyes, with a fresh vision. So then what we see in verse six is such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, O God of Jacob. Really what this is saying is those who are receiving this blessing from the Lord, this deeper relationship with him, those that are seeking him, those are the ones that are going to find him. So pursuing this deeper relationship with God with clean hands and a pure heart as we are saying, okay, God, here's my hands. Here's my heart. Do with my heart the what you want to do. Do with my actions what you want to do. Help me to be a vessel for you. Those are the ones that are going to find their relationship with him growing. And so we should remind ourselves, really, every time we pray to God, we should be reminding ourselves that, that worship is this posture of saying, here I am, Lord, do with my life what you want to do. Because we're getting to a place, hopefully, that we are no longer living for ourselves, but we are living for the Lord. Verse 6, such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, O God of Jacob. What's going on here really is a celebration of those that are going to see the new temple of Solomon. And so when it says such is the generation, the Hebrew reads literally, this is the generation. It says that in the King James, if you want to look it up. But if this psalm is celebrating the new temple, the psalmist is acknowledging that there's a generation of people that are waiting for the temple. And so this idea of seeking the Lord, it's used in Exodus chapter 33 too, or inquiring of the Lord. It's really describing those people who are going to worship in the tabernacle, or in this case, in the temple. And 
and the goal of that is to see God's face, to seek his face and to see his face are synonyms. Um, so if we are headed into this place where we want to see God, not just in our lives, but in the lives of our family, we want to see God working. We want to see God moving as a generation that is waiting to see his face, to seek his face, to see his intervention. As we are waiting upon him, there's something that we can be doing. It's not just about, I, I, I hear this all the time. I don't know what to do in the waiting. It's not just about the thing that's coming. It's about what's going to happen to my heart between here and there. As I wait on the Lord, I have a responsibility to, yes, seek his face, but to prepare my heart, to surrender to surrender my will and my emotions and my mind so that I have clean hands, so that I have a pure heart. So when that benefit of that blessing comes, I'm ready to receive it. I'm not going to waste it. And so sometimes the waiting time is training time because God's not going to give us something before we are able to handle it. Okay. And, and if, if he does, what oftentimes happens, sometimes in his grace, he does. And then we waste it. And and so sometimes that waiting time is because there's something that God wants to do in and through us before we get to that, that final blessing or that thing that we're waiting on. Verse 7, lift up your heads, O you gates, be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Gates to cities and temples in this culture, they served as kind of an important place where there's a lot of activity going on, especially during worship festivals or processions. And we see examples of this from other cultures as well. But in the Old Testament, what we see is this idea that Yahweh was so great and so big and so large that the temple could not contain his presence. So the gates, therefore, figuratively speaking, must enlarge themselves high and wide to let the king of glory pass through. And so on the occasion of the dedication of the temple, Solomon, if you remember, Solomon prays, but will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you. How much less this temple have I built? He says that in First Kings chapter 8. And so in thinking along those lines, the voice in Psalm 24 is commanding the gates to lift themselves up to allow the king of glory, the creator of the universe, to come in. Now, this section here, chat, uh, seven verses 7 through 10, where 8 says, Who is the King of glory, the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle? Lift up your heads, O you gates, lift them up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. And then it repeats, Who is he, this King of glory? The Lord Almighty, he is the King of glory. The Lord strong and mighty. So the question here is a liturgical response. Um, it's not a... It's not a request for information. And the fact that we see some of this verbiage repeated, remember this was a song that they would be singing, but that word translated as strong is only found one other place in the Old Testament. It's in Isaiah 43, 17, when it's talking about reinforcements and it's describing a powerful army. So that word mighty is quite common and it's repeated in the following phrase, 
basically saying Yahweh is a God who is powerful and mighty in military conflict. And so, and then in verse nine, lift up your heads that the King of glory may come in as if the gates did not hear or respond the first time. It's a second command being issue issued. And so this name for God, the King of glory, it's found nowhere else in the Hebrew Bible. Although um, we hear it as the God of glory in Psalm 29, but it's used five times in this Psalm. So who is he? The King of glory. Part of the beauty of this Psalm is the repetition, because um, we've talked about this before. Sometimes it, when we see repetition, when it's said the second time, it's a reinforcement where God has put his stamp of approval on it and it's calling us to pay attention. So a second time in this kind of uh, questioning, it's basically that that voice that is repositioning our hearts to say, who is he, this king of glory? It's um, it's not questioning like, who is this? But it's like, man, who is this? Like even, even um, like I remember even just times in my life where I've been overwhelmed by this awe of who God is. I'm like, who are you? Like, I can't even believe you're so amazing the way that you do this, God. And even like today, um, I live in rural Pennsylvania and there's lots of beautiful leaves that are out where it's like peak season right now. And I remember coming over the hilltop, even just this morning and saying, man, God, who are you that you could even just paint this beautiful picture? And, and that's the sense that we're getting this, not who is he, but man, I I can't even comprehend in my humanness who you even are because of how amazing you are. And so the Lord Almighty, that translates as the Lord of hosts. And that term hosts is talking about um, the angels and the stars. You'll sometimes hear talk talking about heavenly hosts, like in the Christmas story, we talk about that. And so it's an allusion to the creation that God has done, Yahweh. And so the Lord of hosts, it's designating God as Yahweh, as being uh, the king of all over everything, all over creation. And so there is this idea of Yahweh being the king of glory. He's also the king of over creation. He's also the king of the angels and the heavens. And so entering the king's presence is this awesome privilege. And and when we approach him in worship, just as the psalmist did, we should be preparing for that tremendous experience. If we are entering into, think about this, in the temple, it's the same God. It's the same God there that we worship now. It's the same God that lives inside you and me. But if in the temple, it that huge, huge, huge temple was not enough to contain God's glory, so much so that there's this call for the gates to, to rise up and to enlarge themselves to, to let the king of glory pass through. Are we approaching our worship experiences that way? And and not only that, but I think it's important to realize that these verses are are a prophetic view of the Messiah because the King of Glory is the Lord Jesus. And so the generation of people, those who seek him, um, which is really referring to the true faithful followers of God, they must pray that the King of Glory will come. And Yes, this is foreshadowing Jesus, but we are also looking forward to a time where Jesus is coming back. And so if we are a generation of people 
that is not only living our lives for today to experience God's glory in his presence right now, but looking forward to this place when Jesus is coming back to rule and reign. As we wait, are we waiting with pure hearts and clean hands? I hear this um, probably at least once a week where people are saying, oh, Jesus is coming back as the end times, disease and famine and wars and fires and floods and drought and all the things that we hear in the news cycle in a day-to-day basis or a weekly basis. Everybody says, okay, these are the signs of the times. Yet very few people are out evangelizing. Very few people are preparing their hearts in a way that would seem to indicate that they think that he's almost here. And so that waiting time needs to be our training time. And it's not just, yes, yes, this is about preparing our heart for our worship as we approach the King of glory. But it's not just about that. It's about how we live our lives while we are waiting for the King of glory to return. And are we, as his gates, are we enlarging in order to let the king of glory pass through? And what I mean by that is, are we exercising those spiritual muscles so that we grow in our faith? Are we telling people at work about him? Are we teaching our children about him? And not just about the scriptures. Yes, absolutely. 100% I'm an advocate of teaching your children the scriptures. But are we actually teaching them what it means to live a, a life that is surrendered to God, to pursue what it means to have a pure heart and clean hands, to understand what it means to have an authentic, real relationship with him? Are, are we ourselves seeking that? My hope is that, yes, as somebody that's listening to this podcast and that is seeking the Lord, that is in God's word, that understands the treasure that it is, yes, it's my hope that you would be doing that. But if not, it's time to get busy. We have work to do. Because it's not just about what's going to happen when he comes back, but it's about this process of what happens to us while we're waiting. So I'm going to reread Psalm 24 with those insights. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to an idol or swear by what is false, he will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God, his savior. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face. O God of Jacob, lift up your heads. O you gates be lifted up. You ancient doors that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads. O you gates, lift them up. You ancient doors that the king of glory may come in. Who is he, this King of glory, the Lord Almighty? He is the King of glory. Father God, you are the King of glory. You are the King of glory. As I sit here, even saying those words, I am overwhelmed by your spirit that As you are so big and so magnificent that the psalmist talks about the gates enlarging themselves to let you pass through, yet you pursue a relationship 
with me, with my friends. And the fullness of your spirit is embodied in me and in my friends. God, help that not to be lost on us. Help us not to miss the work that you're trying to do in and through our lives. God, help us to not just have pure and clean hearts and hands, but to desire those things, God. Help us to desire this greater relationship with you that pushes aside the lusts of this world and helps us to thirst after you, Lord God. Help our desire to be for you, for more of you. God, enlarge our hearts so that we can allow the King of glory to pass through them as we interact with those in our lives, in the store or at school or in our jobs or online. God, help us to be an overflow of your spirit. God, I thank you for your presence and the way you continue to reveal yourself through your word. I thank you for the Psalms and the treasures that they hold. I pray for my friends that they would receive these words in a way that would impact their lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey friends, if this podcast helped encourage, empower, or equip you for God's call in your life, I would love it if you would head over to Apple Podcasts and leave me a review. That's the number one way you can support my show. You can also join our free Facebook community or Instagram page where I share inspirational tips, resources, and prayer throughout the week. Hey, I want you to know I'm praying for you this week. Know that you are loved, you are cherished, and you are His.